So why don't you turn there, Matthew chapter 14. We have the second storm recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and uh, the first one I'm gonna call Stormology 101. You know, the, the disciples learned some lessons in the class uh, of Jesus's, you know, teaching them. Uh, but this is Stormology 102 right here, where they're gonna get the second lesson. But this, this one, this story uh, is a favorite. I remember loving this story when I was a little kid. But it's the story that just keeps on giving. As you study it, there's so much here and there's so much to learn. And I love so many layers of things we can glean from a story like this. And, um, and, and you know what's so cool about this is um, uh, even though it's a storm, uh, the good news is the Lord was using it for his purpose and for his glory. Um, you know, recently in our story, the disciples are facing a lot of trouble. Uh, you know, already the Pharisees, the leaders are plotting to kill Jesus. That's their leader. You know, they left their nets, they left their occupation, and they're following this guy where the leaders want to kill them, kill him, and, and maybe them as well. I mean, the disciples, this is, a, this is a scary thing. I think we forget. We picture this warm, fuzzy story with the disciples just kind of hanging out and having a great time, but actually their lives are on the line already at this point. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're probably wondering, you know, who is Jesus? Like, they don't even really know exactly who he is yet. Um, and that's evidenced even sometimes in the stories about where they say, wow, uh, this really is maybe the son of God. Like when they see him quiet the wind and the waves, that was Stormology 101 back in Matthew chapter eight. But now we're gonna study this storm and we're gonna see if they learn more of who Jesus is. By the way, I don't think the disciples fully understand who Jesus is until he dies and is buried and resurrects from the grave. That's when they all kind of went, oh, we get it now. But they didn't, they didn't always get it. Some of the disciples I think were convinced Jesus was gonna take over the Roman empire and rule his kingdom right then. I mean, they just didn't know what, what his role and what his rule would be. But the thing is, um, during these times of storms, um, one of the things we can learn is how to navigate the storm as we watch the way the disciples navigate this storm and what, what the Lord does and how he handles it and all that. Um, and uh, you know, the storms are in the Bible are often a type or a picture of the storms in life that we face. And, and I just have to say, it does seem to me like a dark and stormy day here in America right now. We're seeing darkness and, uh, and the winds of, of uh, you know, this and that are blowing and uh, the waves are rising. You know, whether it's recession uh, and inflation, uh, that's not actually happening, or um, supply chain issues, you know? I mean, you can't even get formula or an F-150 or like, like, who would have thought in America you couldn't just get, go purchase something that you needed? Well, that's, we're here, and, and, it's, and they're saying it's gonna get worse, the supply chain issues. Um, we're more divided than ever, and if the election showed one thing is we're very divided, except for, sadly, on one thing, abortion. It seems like America pretty much solidly voted pro-abortion across the country, which is heartbreaking. Um, I think that our nation will be judged for that by the Lord himself, uh, I really do. Crime is on the rise, um, you know, homicides in the big cities, Portland's leading the charge in a lot of homicides, you know, against the other cities. Uh, war and the threat of nuclear war. This is one of those things that people, I think we don't even really fathom, or it seems like we're kind of glib and naive about nuclear weapons. Back, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, if you were old enough to remember that, uh, man, the world was on edge because we felt like we were at the crux of nuclear conflict with the Soviet Union. But the experts today that know about what's going on with 
Putin and Ukraine and what's going on over there, um, they believe we are equally in danger as today as they were in the Cuban Missile Crisis back then. Uh, the, 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 th- the threat of real nuclear weapons being used is looming right now, but everyone's like, yeah, whatever, uh, you know, uh, have a nice day. And, and people are just not really thinking about that. You're like, Brett, we'd like to keep it that way. Let's just not think about it. Um, but at the same time, you know, you, could, you can find yourself kind of looking at the world and thinking, man, things are bad. Things are not really doing very good. And, and people are uh, hardened and sinful and what have you. But when you read a story like this in Matthew 14, it shows us um, some things we need to remember uh, as we face the storms of life. And I think there's some great lessons here. So um, could it be that these storms are, are um, gonna be used for our benefit that we're going through? Um, you know, keep this in mind as we look at this passage, Romans eight twenty eight is that classic scripture, you know, and, and I like how Paul uh, supposes, we all know this, this is something you know. He says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Um, and so we know that the Lord is gonna work everything. Even the storms is gonna work somehow uh, to our benefit. Romans 5, Paul says, I rejoice in tribulation because tribulation brings you know, patience, hope, and experience. So this is what we need to learn to do is embrace the storm and see what's happening. So let's take a look. It's Matthew chapter 14. We'll begin right here in verse 22. It says, and straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled saying, it is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them saying, be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshiped him saying, of a truth, thou art the son of God. What a story. The storm on the sea of Galilee. And, and there's, we just went over 12 verses. And one of the things I like to do, and this is, you know, have you noticed there's different ways you can read the Bible? I think it's pretty fun. I, sometimes I read the Bible more devotionally and just read bit larger chunks at a time. Sometimes I like to journal through the Bible and write thoughts as I'm going through it. Sometimes I like to just pray through scripture. Other times I like to crack open all the commentaries and language studies. And like, there's so many fun ways to, to read the Bible. But one of the ways I like to do it is just writing notes uh, as I go through each verse of the scriptures and just like, what can I learn from this verse? Uh, and it's kind of fun when you are really looking for the gems and the little lessons that we have in scripture. Well, I'd like to, if you would allow me to do kind of a practice like that this morning, um, 12 verses uh, and 12 lessons 
on the storms of life. Uh, 12 points today. You said, oh great, we're gonna be here all day. Uh, exactly. Uh, no, just kidding. And I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna make a quick work of 12 points if you're with me. So let's, let's go to it. Why don't you jot down number one? First of all, we have the mission. The mission. Uh, and it's given to us in the very first verse we read in verse 22. Straightway, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and go before him to the, uh, to the other side. Um, so the, the mission is to get in the ship and cross the Sea of Galilee. Um, I love that Jesus sends them on a mission. The newer translation, some of your newer translations, uh, like the ESV, uh, puts it this way. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. The idea is he, he did make them. The, the King James word constrained is not a really a word we use as much today. Um, the Greek word for made or constrained is anagadzo in the Greek, which means to compel or to necessitate, or even drive by force. Um, Jesus said forcefully, kind of like it was a command. It wasn't a suggestion. Hey, I think you guys should go to the other side. No, it was like, get in the boat, go to the other side. And uh, that's kind of an important part of this because um, you know missions that we go on often are met with peril. One of the things we learn when the Lord calls us to do something, don't be shocked if, it, if it's a little hard sometimes, if it becomes challenging. Um, that's the nature of missions. When you go on a mission, uh, there, there's op opposition and trouble and difficulty. We shouldn't be shocked when we're doing what we're doing when trouble comes our way. That shouldn't be a shock to us. Um, you know, Paul talks about, you know, why do you think it's strange uh, when there's fiery trials that come, you know, your way? We shouldn't think that's a strange thing. That's just normal life when trouble comes. Um, and, and, you know, this, this is Jesus really commanding as their leading commanding officer, if you would. Like, this is what you got to do. And it's a commandment, really. But one of the things I need to remind you in this lesson number one about the mission is don't forget what we learned a few weeks back. Remember when we talked about God's commandments are his what? Enablements. He, if he tells you to do it, he's gonna give you what you need, the resources and whatever needs to come your way. He's gonna get you through that. Now, you know, it's easy for us to say, well, they should have just trusted Jesus as they were in their boat going across the sea. Uh, they, were, they were freaked out and shrieking with fear like little girls. Like it's easy to, to criticize these guys. Um, but what do you and I do uh, when we're given the mission? And do we just say, well, the Lord commanded me to do this. So I'm gonna just trust that the Lord's got this. Uh, they should have just trusted, but that's pretty easy for us to say. What would you have done had you been in their sandals in that boat that day? Would you have freaked out? Uh, like they did, or complained about having to go, or scared about going, or apathetic about going. Like, you know, there's, we have our own problems. But the question we kind of leave you with point number one is what is the mission God has called for you to be on? Um, there's some general missions we're all called, you know, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize people. That mission should keep you and me busy the rest of our lives. That's one mission. Or how about this mission? Love one another. That's a mission fraught with peril. Trying to love people, that's, that's a hard one. But remember, his commandments, love one another, are also his enablements. He'll give you what you need uh, should you accept this mission. Uh, I can almost hear the Mission Impossible music behind the scenes right now as the Lord calls us on these missions you know, to serve him. So number one, you have the mission. Um, number two, we notice the isolation. What's that? Well, in verse 23, Jesus gets away. After he sends the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. 
Isn't it amazing? I mean, this really, if you think about it, it's a shocker. Here's Jesus, who is God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. When he said that stuff, people picked up rocks and wanted to stone him to death because they said, he makes himself equal to God. Exactly, that's what he said. And that's what it was true. But isn't it fascinating that God in the flesh saw fit to the need to get away and seek the Father? Well, Brad, isn't, you said he was the, he, Jesus is God. Yep, then why, how is he seeking the Father? I don't have the foggiest idea. It's called the mystery of the Trinity. And it's, it's something that is, is hard to get our brains around. And I'm not troubled by that because um, God is uh, in three persons, but one God. And it's just the mystery of the Trinity. It's not, a, it's not something that, you know, we have to freak out about. But isn't it interesting that Jesus said, you know, I'm gonna take some time apart from the crowds and get away alone by myself and just seek the, the Father. And if Jesus needed to do that, how much more do you need to do that? And I ask you this question, when was the last time you purposefully got away to seek the Lord? Like literally uh, intentionally said, I'm gonna go somewhere where nobody's gonna be able to you know, bug me. Or, uh, and in and, and this modern age, I have to include, when you're getting away to seek the Lord, that means shutting down your smartphone. Uh, that, that doesn't count. If your smartphone's up and running, that doesn't count. Uh, I think we've, we've destroyed our ability to truly be alone and, uh, and, and focus our brains because, man, we got texts coming in and news uh, alerts and, and uh, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, fruit ninja to play. Like, it's an incredible how busy, how shockingly busy you guys are uh, with your phones. I think we got to shut them down and get away. If Jesus needed to do that, how much more do you and I need to take time away? And, and this could answer a lot of questions. Maybe you need some isolation because maybe you're feeling anxiety or stress or you're frustrated with what's going on around you. I think sometimes that's unnecessary uh, because you're, you're unwilling to take that time away in isolation. Jesus finds himself here alone uh, and that's, I think that's what um, he did purposefully, by the way. So all that to say, uh, we need to do that. So we got already uh, two lessons. We have the mission that uh, we're called. What is that mission? You might pray about that. And then also isolation. And then number three, the tribulation starts beginning. Brett, the great tribulation? No, this is just the, the kind of tribulation we all go through. Jesus talked about this. In the word, it says, you know, uh, in, in this life, you will have tribulation. It's part of the deal. Uh, there is the great tribulation that's coming, but in verse 24, that's when trials start. It says, but the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And that's one of the things the Bible does promise that's gonna happen to you and me is um, the storms of this life. It's part of the deal. Um, again, we don't be not, not to be shocked uh, when tribulation and trials comes our way. Um, I, I showed you some of this footage of our trip to Sea of Galilee a few years back. Um, and it's hard to picture this little quaint sea or lake, big lake, uh, sort of being tossed. But there's a couple factors. Uh, one is there's a valley at the north end of this where the wind comes howling through and it causes that Venturi effect where the wind speeds up and the waves actually, I've seen it on the Sea of Galilee, four or five foot waves splashing around. You say, well, I could take my, my sea dew on a four foot wave, whatever. But they didn't have sea dews, they had this. This is a, a replica right here of a boat they found uh, back in the 1980s, uh, the Jesus boat. And 
this is the, the literal boat from the first century. That's why they call it the Jesus boat. And as I look at the structure of this boat, I know it's been dilapidated for a couple thousand years in the mud, but still I, you can see what kind of construction it was. And it wasn't, you know, the King James says it was a big ship. Like some of you are picturing the Queen Mary coming up, you know, it's like, no, it's not the Queen Mary, the ship. Uh, it's, to us, it's just a small boat. Um, you know, and this is the boat, that the, the, the kind of boat the disciples would have been in. So no wonder, you know, they're kind of freaked out. This is, you know, we always take our groups here if we can uh, to see this boat because it is kind of fun. And it's, uh, at, it's at this kibbutz there uh, off the Sea of Galilee. But, um, but all that to say, you might ask the question, why does God allow us to go through storms or troubles or tribulation? Why does the Lord allow that? Um, and I, I wanna offer just three quick uh, suggestions of why the storms come. Why does God allow us to, you know, why doesn't he just protect us? If he loves us and if we're the bride of Christ or his children, why does he just completely isolate us from the storms of life? Well, if you're a parent, some of you know that sometimes you allow uh, tr your kids to go through trouble. Uh, and it's good for them uh, for various reasons. In the same way, I think number one, the one reason the Lord allows us to go through storms is for correction. He wants to correct us and, and maybe we're going the wrong direction. Just ask Jonah. God said, go, Jonah said, no. And so Jonah got into a ship and went the opposite direction of where God wanted him to go. So the Lord said, I'm gonna correct that. And the way he corrected it, well, if you're new to the Bible, that's why the story of Jonah is so famous. It's kind of a radical story. Jonah's in a boat going the wrong direction. And so the Lord sends a storm for correction. And eventually the guys in the boat realize Jonah's the problem. So they throw him overboard and a big fish eats him and then barfs him on the beach. Uh, and then he walks into the city where he's supposed to go and starts preaching. They all get saved. And then he pouts for the rest of the story. It's, a, it's an amazing story. The story of Jonah is quite fascinating. But I love how the Lord used uh, this storm that came to correct his course. Uh, he was off course. And I think sometimes the Lord, could it be that the storm you're going through personally right now is the Lord saying, hello, I've got something to correct you. Some, you're going the wrong direction in something. And I think wise is the man, wise is the woman who says, I'm gonna just sort of be you know, aware of the possibility of me just going the wrong direction. And this might be the Lord trying to get my attention. That's a possibility. How do you know for sure? Pray about it. Seek the Lord. Ask good for good counsel from other Christians. Uh, is, is this possible? I'm going the wrong direction in this or that or the other? And the Lord will send the storms, so don't be shocked for correction. But number two, for instruction. Um, and this is where we talk about this storm as being Stormology 102. Um, the Lord is using this storm to instruct um, these, these uh, disciples to really do a bunch of things, to learn how to trust Jesus, um, to learn how to deal with storms and not be afraid. Um, I told you this is Stormology 102. Is there gonna be a 103 class? Well, if you know the disciples, they get up to like the 400 level for you college people. The disciples get to the 400 level classes. What do you mean, Brett? What about the storms of the 10 waves of persecution? After Jesus ascended into heaven, the church and the early disciples, they were horribly persecuted by the Roman emperors for 10 emperors there were 10 waves of persecution. Read Fox's Book of Martyr and you start to realize, wow, these early disciples and Christians, you know, I mean, it's an amazing thing. Simon Peter, of course, they, they, you know, he would face the storm of death by Caesar Nero around 68 AD where um, they would crucify him. And as church history tells us, they were gonna crucify him on a cross just like Jesus. But he said, I'm not worthy to die the death of Jesus. So they turned the cross upside down and hung Peter upside down on a cross. 
Um, you know, James the Lesser, who was the son of Alphaeus, he was the first bishop of Jerusalem. He was martyred in his early 90s. He was an old little old man. Um, but he was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. Um, then when his body hit the ground, they threw stones on him and smashed his head with a, with a club. Like that was the end of, that was a storm that James would face. Andrew, the brother of Peter, um, was crucified on an X-shaped cross um, in Southern Greece. And he hung, hung there on this cross, not with nails, but with ropes. And for two days hung there and he preached for all the two days, preaching about Jesus as people walked by to see him hanging there. Philip is said to have had been tortured, impaled by iron hooks uh, in his ankles and then hung upside down uh, there in Heliopolis, Heliopolis in 54 AD down in Egypt. And he was preaching during that as well as he was hanging there with hooks in his ankles. Like these guys would face horrible, horrible storms. And this is the Lord just saying, uh, I'm gonna start you out easy. I bet you there was a day where the disciples got to point, boy, I'd, I'd long for the good old days when we were sitting on the Sea of Galilee being tossed by the waves. That was no big deal. But all of that was part of the instruction that the Lord would use to prepare and equip his disciples to be ready for what was coming. And then thirdly, this, I'm, I'm, this is not an exhaustive list, but uh, thirdly, for revelation, that is to reveal um, who Jesus really is. The storms oftentimes make you see Jesus more clearly than when you're not in a storm. Um, ask Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. When did they see Jesus? When they were in the fiery furnace. Suddenly they're in there with Jesus. And you'll find this to be true when you're going through life's storms and struggles, that's when you see Jesus the, the clearest. Um, you know, in Mark's gospel, Mark 4, 35, they were in the storm and Jesus calmed the storm. And there they said, who is this? The disciples pondered. Even the wind and the waves obey him, they said. Um, that, that's, that's pretty radical that they started to see when the storm was calmed by Jesus, they realized revelation, who Jesus really is. So you got the mission, you've got isolation, you got tribulation, um, and then you have number four on the list, the solution, the solution. Um, I love verse 25, it says, and in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. Da, 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 the hero of the story enters in. Jesus is the solution. And I gotta tell you, don't forget that whatever storms you're going through, Jesus is the answer. It really is. You'll look to other things for answers and they'll fail you. But no matter what you're going through, Jesus is the answer. I love, I grew up listening to Andre Crouch. My parents would put the record on, you know, and we listened to Andre Crouch and the disciples, uh, his disciples, which was great. But he had a song, Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him, there's no other. Jesus is the way. And uh, what a truth that is. The world needs Jesus. He's the answer for the storm that we're seeing here in America. Um, people need Jesus Christ. Um, notice with me that he wasn't recognized right away. They didn't know him as Jesus. They thought he was Casper the friendly ghost or, or not so friendly ghost. They're, they're freaking out here. Um, and, and the reason that's an important thing to observe is that sometimes we don't recognize in our storm when the Lord is intervening and, and he's actually here to help, but we, re we don't recognize him as the one who's supposed to help us. We think he's part of the problem. Um, they think it's a ghost and they think it's part of the problem. Oh, we got a ghost. What could be worse? We already have a storm. We're gonna drown in our boat that's falling apart. And then, uh, and then now we got a ghost, but that was just wrong. The thing they thought was a ghost was actually Jesus. I wonder if 
I wonder if the Lord has come to you during your storm saying, I wanna help you. I wanna get you through this storm, but you don't even recognize it as the Lord. You're recognizing it as part of the problem. I've found that the answers often come in various ways, but ultimately it gets down to the solution is always Jesus. And so the question is, you know, the storms you're facing and you're looking for a solution, um, but I wonder if, if the solution might just be more simple than you really think. It, it really is just seeking Jesus, looking to Jesus, um, keeping your eyes on Jesus. Well, that's the solution. We got Jesus in verse 25. And then uh, on the fifth uh, of our uh, verses, the fifth point is the trepidation. Uh, that's a fancy word for severe fear, uh, crazy level fear. And that's what's going on here. In verse 26, uh, it says, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled. So they're already troubled because of the storm. But now they're really troubled because they say it's a spirit or a ghost. And they cried out for fear. Um, there's nothing funnier than seeing like a grown man crying out for fear. I wonder if after they got to the shore, if like John was like, Peter, I saw you crying out like, ah! Like, like I, I would be there making fun of each other that way. If it was me and my buddies, I'd say, I saw you. You were like, ah! little girl crying out for fear because you thought it was a ghost. Come on, are you kidding me? You're gonna make this in the Bible for all eternity. We're, people in Portland, Oregon are gonna be reading about you uh, 2,000 years from now and they're gonna be laughing. Um, but that's the thing. Oftentimes in the storms of life, you find that there are fearful moments where you're like, I'm going down. Or this is really a scary, troublesome situation. And um, you know, here's some big fishermen that are freaking out in fear. And fear makes people do really dumb things. Uh, these guys were shrieking out in fear. Um, I'm, I'm told the story of a couple gas meter readers. One guy was the senior you know, training supervisor and the young trainee, they were out checking meters. They'd parked the truck, the gas truck out you know, further out and they were going around checking meters. Well, um, the younger guy uh, said to the older guy, hey, I bet I could beat you back to the truck after they finished reading all the homes there. Um, and the guy said, no way. And he said, 10 bucks, they can make it. So they take off and they're both running as fast as they can. And as they're running to the truck, suddenly there's this lady in her bathrobe and house shoes and curlers and she's running right along with them like the same, same speed. And they look at her, what are you doing? And they said, well, when you see two gas guys running for their lives, <laughs> I thought I better run too. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that fear is sort of um, infectious? Like when people are really afraid, it's, it's really stacks on itself. I think that happened with the coronavirus, the levels of fear. You know, we used to be a nation was land of the free, uh, home of the brave, but now we're the home of the fearful. Uh, everything, we're all so afraid of things. And, and it's like, we've become a very fearful bunch. We used to be a country where we said, you know, we're not, you know, we're not, um, you know, the only thing to fear uh, is fear itself. Uh, but that doesn't count anymore. Um, and fear can make you do really weird things. Um, the solution that would calm the sea, Jesus, is the very thing that made them the fra afraid the most at first. They didn't recognize Jesus. Different means, different methods. Uh, don't be shocked when the solution to the storm you're in comes in an unlikely way. That seems to be God's specialty. He likes to kind of make us have to trust him and know that he's in control. So we're not supposed to be given over to that spirit of fear, but of, of power and of love and of a sound mind. Uh, so that's number five. Number six, we're moving through this. Uh, we have the instruction in verse 27. There it says, but straightway, and I love this. This is my favorite verse in the whole story right here. Um, it says, but straightway Jesus spake unto them saying, be of good cheer. It is I, be not afraid. Don't you love that? 
I, I, I really do think that we, we've got a wrong image of Jesus, uh, that he was this grave sort of Charles Manson looking character. Uh, we've got it all wrong. I, I think Jesus was the life of the party. Like everywhere Jesus went, there was joy and gladness. And, and here he is coming out of the room, hey, be of good cheer. Uh, I love that. Um, you know, Jesus comes to the wedding and they're out of wine. Go talk to Jesus. And he says, oh, do this and fill the pots with water. And suddenly, you know, Jesus brought the wine back into the party and that party gets up and going again and things are all good. Like Jesus wasn't the guy making everybody feel bad about themselves. He's going around saying, hey, everybody cheer up. Uh, this is something we, we don't realize. You know, prophetically, um, in one of the great messianic psalms, Psalm 45, 7, this psalm, psalm is prophetically speaking of Jesus. It says, thou lovest righteousness, hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Um, what did Jesus have? He had an anointing with gladness. Yeah, but he suffered and went to the cross dying. Yeah, but do you remember what the Bible says? It was the joy that was set before him that endured the cross, despising the shame. Um, Jesus, I think, was the one coming up saying in the middle of a storm, hey, be of good cheer. Now, if it were me logically thinking through this, I'd think, Jesus, you got your order wrong. Maybe you should say, don't be afraid. It is I. Be of good cheer. Like you have reason to be cheerful now because I'm here. But that's not what Jesus said. I think there's something to this order that I find interesting. He, he starts out with be of good cheer. In other words, choose to be happy before you even know what's gonna happen next. That's a, a, a thing in the Bible. The Bible tells us to, to just in everything give thanks. Well, what if we don't like what's happening? Everything, everything give thanks. Why? This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. That's what 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us, to be thankful and joyful, to rejoice evermore, to be thankful before we see the answer. So choose to be happy even before the storm is passed. Be of good cheer, then realize it is I, Jesus. Uh, and then because it's Jesus, we don't have to be afraid. Um, I've seen this up close, by the way, where Christians, and I'm not sure this is something that is taught as much. I can sit here and teach it, but it's something that I've noticed is caught more than it's taught. What do you mean? This idea of being of good cheer before you see the solution. I've seen this in people's lives as, as they face, as some of the people I've noticed in ministry over the years who face some of the most brutal situations. Um, you know, the cancer patients who are told they only have, you know, two months to live. I've seen it where, man, the Lord just gives that person a peace in their heart and they're, they're full of cheer. Oh, I can tell you stories of deathbed experiences. I, I, you know, as I've visited people in the hospital and just watched them shine the light of Jesus. And even the doctors and nurses thinking, what's wrong with this person? We think there might be a tumor in the brain because they're really joyful too. Uh, like I've seen doctors question, what's wrong with this person? And actually there's nothing wrong. It's actually what's right is that they're putting their trust in the Lord and it's not about this life. And they have this peace that passes understanding. And so they, they're cheerful even in the midst of their sorrow and struggle. That's next level Christianity, by the way. People that are suffering, but they still have a joyful demeanor. That's, that's, uh, that's people that are, are, I would say, graduated to the next level for sure. Well, that brings us to number seven. Now we have the action. The action? Yeah, this is where the, the, the drama sort of kicks into gear in verse 28. When Peter, verse 28, answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, uh, bid me to come to thee on the water. Now, have you ever wondered, I, I've wondered this since I was a kid, why did Peter do this? What was his objective? What did he wanna do? What did he wanna accomplish? 
Um, and it could be any number of things. I don't have a full answer. There is a little bit of an answer coming up in the scripture here. But, um, you know, maybe it was because it was just awesome. Peter's like, I want to walk on the water. Jesus, can I walk on the water like you? Uh, maybe it was just that simple. It's a neat trick. Uh, and by the way, Peter does go down. I think Peter gets a bad rap for this. Uh, you know, uh, everybody remembers, oh, he sunk and failed and took his eyes on Je off Jesus. My argument is, yeah, but he walked on water for even a few seconds. Uh, he was the only disciple willing to get out of that nice, comfortable, dry boat and step into a stormy sea. Like, Peter should get some credit for this. Uh, he wants to go out and go boardless, you know, like Jesus, out there just walking on the, on the water, you know? Uh, and I love that Peter wants to do this. Maybe it's just that. Maybe he just feels like the boat is unsafe and the sweaty, stinky, fishy disciples, he's like, I've had it, I'm out of this boat. Uh, can I come out to you, Jesus? I'm sick of toiling with these knuckleheads. And maybe he just wanted to get out of the boat. If that's the case, it's funny, because where did he end up at the end of the story? Back in the boat. Some of you have tried to get out of your stinky situation. And the Lord's like, oh, yeah, no, you're back in your little situation there. Uh, sometimes the Lord does that. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Um, or, or maybe, you know, Peter just didn't know what else to do. Um, have you ever noticed that people say stuff when they don't know what to say? or they do stuff when they don't know what to do. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a characteristic of some of us. I, I tend to be that way. You know, if, it, if there's an awkward pause, I'm the one who wants to fill it with something. And that's usually when you say really stupid things. That's what Peter does all the time. Um, yeah, you remember when they're on the Mount of Transfiguration, you know, not knowing what to say, Peter said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Like it goes into this big thing and the Lord says, zip it, Pete. Uh, like it's a funny story there. But in this case, maybe he's just like, wow, this is amazing. What are we gonna do? Could I come out there too? It's like, he just says, I, I wanna go. Maybe that's it. Uh, didn't know what to do. But, but the fact is, um, you gotta love Peter because minimally he's wanting to do what Jesus is doing. And I think that's a good plan. Um, you, and I, you and I should say, what, what, what did Jesus do? And let's do that. Well, Brett, that's Jesus. He's walking on the water. And you can't do that. Well, that's probably what the other disciples thought. But as it turns out, Peter was onto something. In fact, you and I are kind of given the same challenge in the sense that the things that Jesus did, did you know you and I, by the power of Jesus, by believing on Jesus, can do some of the same things Jesus did? This is where that scripture from John 14, 12 comes in, where Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, he shall do also. And greater works than these shall he do because I go to my Father. Now, point of clarification, and I hope you know the answer to this. Um, does this mean you can become greater than Jesus? Good, you guys did better than last night. I was a little disappointed <laughs> in the Saturday night service, folks. Um, but no, uh, you say, but that's ridiculous. It's not because there's pastors in Portland preaching that you can be greater than Jesus because of this, this verse. And that's what you call missing the whole point. Um, what does it mean that you shall do greater works than these uh, that Jesus was doing? Well, the answer has to do with, first of all, let's remember, you're gonna do the works because you believe on Jesus. That's what it says. I said to you, he that believes on me, the works that I do, he shall do also. And then when it says greater works than these shall he do because I go to my father, Jesus says, I'm limited to the great works that I'm gonna do because I'm gonna go to my father. I'm gonna be crucified, ascend into heaven and, uh, and sit at the right hand of my father. Meanwhile, back at the ranch here on earth, you, the church, the disciples, we get to continue doing the work that Jesus started. 
with the same power uh, by the Holy Spirit that Jesus worked in. And so when it says greater works than these shall he do, it doesn't mean greater, like you're gonna be greater than Jesus. It just means for the next couple thousand years, uh, you're gonna be doing these great works and it's gonna be greater in scope, greater in uh, amount of people reached and touched because Jesus would move in and through his church. It's not that we're greater than Jesus. Be careful. Anybody who's teaching um, any hint, any whiff of minimizing Jesus in any way, shape or form, run for your life from that Bible teacher or ministry. You gotta, anybody who's minimizing Jesus, and that's happening today. Um, and it's ridiculous. Be careful. There's some real, really shaky, sketchy uh, sort of notions about minimizing Jesus and making ourselves look like we're better than Jesus somehow. Watch out for that notion. Well, anyway, um, this, is, this verse where it says, you know, the works that I do, he shall do. Peter experiences this. Jesus is walking on the water. Peter walks on the water. Why? Because he looks at Jesus and trusts in Jesus. And so the action here is really cool. Just, you know, how can I be more like Jesus? And you gotta give Peter some credit for this. That's number seven. But then we move to verse 29 for point number eight. Now we have the invitation. Um, you, know, uh, you know, Peter asked, Lord, can I come? Bid me, give me permission. And now we have the invitation where Jesus says unto him, verse 29, the single little red letter word there, come. And Peter was come down out of the ship and walked on the water to go to Jesus. On this invitation, one of the things I like about Peter, he doesn't just typical Peter, if you ask me, would have just not even asked. He would have just jumped overboard and started to try to walk on the water. That's typical Peter. But man, you gotta love Peter for saying, Lord, can I come out and walk on the water? And Jesus said, come. The invitation. I think that's important because you and I, we need to uh, wait for that invitation from the Lord, or you might even call it confirmation. Uh, I, you could call this one conf, invitation or com, confirmation, whatever you feel most comfortable. But that's, the idea is you gotta make sure you're, you're confirmed that this is what the Lord wants you to do. Because I've seen people jump ship and it wasn't really of the Lord. And when you jump ship and it's not from the Lord, you end up sinking, that's not a good plan. You need to have confirmation. How do you get confirmation? Uh, there's confirmation in the word of God. There's confirmation in other Christians and believers that you trust, that know are praying for you and about you, uh, that you can be confirmed. Uh, there's, you know, I there's nothing I love more than you know, somebody who's taking a venture of faith, a leap of faith, like Peter here. But confirmation is kind of the key. For Deb and I, you know, moving to Portland when we had little, you know, preschoolers and, and had a great job. Everything was rosy and great. And suddenly the Lord stirred our heart to move to the most unchurched city in America. At that time in 96, Portland and Seattle were jockeying back and forth. We're the most unchurched people in America. So we thought, Lord, are you calling us to move to Portland? Man, we don't know anybody up there. Um, Portland's weird. Um, like, why would we move there? But the Lord just kept kind of stirring my heart. But through his word and then through some other brothers and sisters in, in Southern Oregon, we had, there was one, one of the elders who was not a super holy, you know, wasn't walking around with a halo. And, but he, he, he was uncharacteristically, he walked up to me and said, um, Brett, I don't know what you've been praying about, but the Lord put it on my heart to tell you this word, go. And I remember hearing that from the guy and I'm like, he didn't even know that I was really praying about, it. like I was right on the edge of making that decision. And it was just so good to have that confirmed by another brother who I knew was seeking the Lord and praying and reading the word. Um, man, you gotta have confirmation. The greatest story of this in the Bible, if, if you ask me, is Jonathan and his armor bearer. I love that story. Jonathan wakes up, um, um, 
and um, you know, kind of says, hey, let's go, let's go fight some Philistines by ourselves. Like there's a harebrained idea, if you ask me, but it's a leap of faith, a venture of faith. And the armor bearer's like, yeah, cool, let's go. So Jonathan and his armor bearer, they take off early in the morning, but I love that he waits for confirmation. And, and he says, Lord, if, you, if you're gonna do this, if we reveal ourselves to the Philistines, hello, then, and if they say, come up here, we'll show you a thing or two, then we're gonna come up and fight them. But if they say, wait right there, we're gonna get you, uh, then we run for our lives. Well, no, you're not in this. So like even Jonathan, who's fairly reckless, if you ask me, he even puts in that part for confirmation or invitation to come and do what he feels that he's called to do. And if you know the story, the, the, those Philistines said, you guys come up here, we'll show you a thing or two. And so Jonathan and his armor bolt up the cliff and they wipe out the whole army of Philistines. Like it's a great Bible story. I wonder what things the Lord would have us do that are kind of over the top, ventures of faith. Um, I think we should be ready for that, but also make sure that you have confirmation or invitation from the Lord. So that's what happens. Peter said, can I come? And he says, come, he's invited. That brings us now to verse 30, point number nine, the distraction. Um, but when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried saying, Lord, save me. Oh, that's the problem. When you're in the storms of life and you're taking a venture of faith and you're stepping out uh, and you're, you're doing stuff that's a little on the edge, one of the, the worst things that happens is when you and I get our eyes off Jesus and we look at the storm and we look at the waves. Um, what, what are the temptations you have to look at things that discourage you and keep your eyes on the, is it your financial portfolio? Is it the people around you that are discouraging you or the failures that you've had? Um, you gotta keep your eyes on Jesus. It reminds me of Hebrews 12 too. This says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher, or some of your translations say perfecter of our faith. You know, I love the book of Philippians. It's a book about joy. 19 times the word joy or rejoice is used by Paul in the book of Philippians, but he wrote the book from a prison cell in Rome. Who writes a happy, you know, joyful book in a prison cell? But Paul had this real love in his heart for the Philippians. Like when you read the, the letters to Corinthian church, you're like, Paul doesn't really like those guys very much. Like the letters to Corinth were pretty prickly. But when it came to the Philippian church, he's like gushes with love and joy. And he writes this book about joy. And, and the thing that I learned from that is Paul, his joy wasn't determined by his circumstances, but his joy was determined by a person, Jesus. He kept his eyes on Jesus and thus he found himself at peace and putting his trust in Jesus. He even wrote this to the Philippian church in Philippians 4, six through seven, classic scripture, but be careful or anxious for nothing, but in everything uh, by prayer uh, and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which passes understanding, like it goes way past logic and what you're seeing with your eyes. It goes past that, this peace um, that only comes from God. It says, shall keep your hearts and minds. And then the operative thing there is through Christ Jesus. That's what we're talking about. Peter took his eyes off Jesus, thus he lost his peace and he started sinking, if you would. Um, it's all through Jesus, keeping your eyes on Jesus. By the way, the next verse in Philippians there goes on and says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatsoever, what, whatever is true, whatever is noble, this is the NIV, by the way, version, I did this on purpose, whatever is right, pure, lovely, admirable, anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. And remember, this is that scripture where we get our acronym, Tiener Plap. 
Tiener Plap, yep, TNR, true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, Plap, uh, excellent, praiseworthy. Uh, that's, that's a word you gotta remember. When you feel yourself looking at the storm, you gotta Tiener Plap those thoughts. Just remember Tiener Plap. Uh, when my kids were little, the kids would be pouting around the house. Kids, you better Tiener Plap those thoughts. And they knew from family devos that that meant think about whatever's true and pure and lovely and noble and admirable, praiseworthy. These are the things we gotta keep our minds on. Um, and, and that's what we gotta do. Peter, he'd lost perspective and he started looking at the waves. Um, there, there's an old preacher that said, whatever waves are over your head, they are under his feet. I think that's a good reminder. You might see the waves around you, but don't forget they're still under his feet. So that's the distraction. So we have the mission. We have isolation, tribulation, solution, trepidation, instruction, action, invitation, distraction. And now number 10, we have the salvation. Uh, I love this part. Um, the salvation comes when it says in verse 31, and immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Do you think Jesus was saying this condemningly? I think sometimes we read the scriptures wrong when we say, you know, maybe he was looking very disgruntled. You know, oh, thou of little faith, you nincompoop. Like, was that what Jesus was saying? No, I think that if, if you could picture, like somebody giving you lessons on something that you want to learn and do. Remember, this is Stormology 102. Like Peter's learning stuff here. And it's like the professor, Jesus is saying, you know, now what happened there? <laughs> Let's just kind of re revisit what's going on. Why did you doubt? That's what got you into trouble. It's like when somebody's instructing you, they're kind of saying, well, this is why you did that. You know, your golf swing is a little off. Because you're slicing it every single time because you do this. It's like, it's kind of like an instructive moment. Um, but I love that even with instruction, I love that Jesus still is the salvation as he pulls Peter up out of the water. Now, by the way, I have a, a sideline theme here on this one. Uh, I, uh, again, I don't think Jesus, like, like I mentioned earlier, he didn't look like Charles Manson. Jesus, I think, was a bigger guy. And, and I'll tell you why I think that. Um, number one, when he went and you know, made a whip of small cords and turned the tables in the temple, nobody came and said, hey, what do you think you're doing? Nobody said that. Jesus was imposing enough to where he was there. Not one man out of hundreds, maybe thousands of men that were there, not one of them said, hey, he, should, he shouldn't be turning the tables. Hey, get security. Or Nobody did that. They all just kind of stepped back and said, uh, nobody said, hey, you know, you and me, Southern Steps right now. Like nobody said that. Um, Jesus just did it, un, 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 you know, impeded. Um, that's one evidence. I think Jesus was a bigger imposing guy. I also think it's possible that he was a bigger guy because remember they accused, falsely, they accused him of being a glutton. Brett, you're just trying to build image in your own, <laughs> Jesus in your own image. No, I'm not. Um, I, I really do believe Jesus was a bigger guy. Now they falsely accused him of being a glutton, but they also, they also, uh, you know, we, we see here in this story, Jesus took Peter and picked him up and put him in the boat. Peter was a big guy. We know that for sure. In fact, uh, like there's several things in the Bible that crack me up, like John the apostle, when he writes his gospel, John's always kind of talking in the third person and he gets little jabs in there. Like, I love this. Like, for example, what is it? John uh, 20 verse four, when John and Peter are running to the tomb on resurrection Sunday morning, uh, John just kind of slips this into the gospel for 2000 years. So they, Peter and John, both ran together. The other disciple did outrun Peter <laughs> and came first to the sepulcher. You know, Mr. Gazelle, John, the mysterious one, whatever. 
I relate to Peter, you know, John gets there, looks in and he turns around and then Peter, <gasps> he's coming in, you know, like, I love that. Peter's a big guy, but Peter, you know, and by the way, in church history, did you know there were some sects of the church that called Peter the giant? Peter the giant, that's what they called him. He was a big fisherman. Um, but Jesus takes the big fisherman and picks him up and puts him, well, Brett, he's Jesus. He could have Yoda, you know, just kind of used the force and lifted Peter back in. No, it says right here that immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand, caught him, and, and then he put him back in the boat. The idea is there. Um, I don't know, maybe that's think, overthinking it, but I just think that we've got to rethink it. Now, you could say, well, Brett, that's maybe, maybe not. But here's what I will say for sure. Um, I do think that whether we sell Jesus short on his physical strength as just a man, we definitely sell Jesus short on his spiritual strength. What can Jesus do? Well, Brad, I think my problem's too bad. I don't think Jesus can save me. Ah, there's nothing he can't do. There's nothing that's hard for him. Um, And I I have to remember that Jesus is in fact strong. And I like to remember this image of Jesus pulling Peter up out of the water and putting him back in the boat. Well, only a couple more, then we're wrapping it up. See, I told you, blazing through 12 points. Number, what are we on, 11? The subjection. There's something we have to observe here in verse 32, where it says, and when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Now in this storm uh, story, um, it doesn't really say how the wind ceased, but we kind of assume that Jesus was in control because he, he settles the situation by putting Peter back in the boat. And once they're there, the storm ceases. So we kind of can deduce that Jesus calmed the storm. But remember what happened in Stormology 101, Matthew 8, 27, it says, but then the men marveled saying, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Um, the one thing we need to see is that there's subjection, that the wind and the waves were subject to his power and to his authority. This was the second demonstration that even the wind and the waves were subject to him. All things are under his control and power. Um, Jesus lacks for no thing. He's, he's perfectly all together. So we wanna see that, the subjection, uh, that Jesus is in control. All things are subject to him. And then that brings us to the last and 12th and final verse, the 12th point, verse 33, the exaltation. Oh, this is important. In verse 33, it says, um, and then they were in the the ship. And by the way, the word, the King James says ship uh, because the King James thought they would sort of improve the the way this all sound, I think, somehow. This is one of the mistakes of the 1611 translation. It really is translated as boat. If you look up the Greek original word, it's, it's a boat. Um, but it says that they were in the, the boat, came and worshiped him saying of a truth, thou art the son of God. Remember when we talked about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit uh, a few weeks ago, that was a whole sermon we did. Well, they're doing the opposite of that right now by saying this is truly the son of God, Jesus. And they're worshiping him here the exaltation. Um, They're worshiping because they got saved. They're worshiping because the storm was under his authority. And and, you know, what what human nature does that's so ugly is we get out of the storm and we forget to even be thankful or grateful or honoring to the one that calmed the storm. Human nature is, oh, what a coincidence. The storm is over, time to go. And we forget that it was the Lord who got us through the storm. I think that's a problem because uh, later on in life, it's like, well, what has the Lord ever done for me? And it's because we forget. It's like the, the 10 lepers that came and got cleansed by Jesus, but only one of the, of the 10 uh, you know, came back and thanked Jesus for healing him. 
Um, and that guy got an extra blessing. He was made whole because he was thankful. You parents, you know this is an ugly part of human nature and you don't want your kids to display that. What do you do if you're a parent and you buy all these nice gifts for your kids at Christmas and they tear into the presents and then toss them aside and say, yeah, whatever, and walk out of the room uh, and not thankful at all? Well, you, you probably have some work to do, mom and dad, because that's, uh, that's an ugly part of human nature, to be ungrateful, unthankful, and yet, how many times has the Lord blessed us, got us through the storms of life, the difficult times, and we're ha having this unworshipful, unappreciative, unthankful kind of attitude? Man, we, we can't do that. We gotta bring in that, that uh, 12th and final point, the exaltation. That's why on a Sunday morning when we start out, we always start out with worshiping our Lord because he deserves it. And we need to, to be a good kid, not a spoiled little brat, to be a good kid, we come to church and say, oh Lord, thank you for what you've done. And we, we sing songs of praise for all of his glorious deeds. And that's what a good Christian will do is be a worshiper. I, I fear that, you know, uh, Athey Creek, you know, because we like our Bibles and we love theology and doctrine and we like getting into all this stuff, that's all true and great. But I, I don't wanna be one of those, you know, churches that we're all about our doctrine, but there's not really a heartfelt, worshipful church for all the good things the Lord has done. We need both. I love the scriptures, and I love teaching and doctrine, but I also think we should be really given to the exaltation. These guys stop and just worship and say, truly, this is the Son of God. Um, there it is, 12 lessons from the Stormology 102. What are the lessons the Lord would have for you to glean from these 12 points? Maybe there's something we didn't even cover that the Lord would remind you and show you in this story. Be that as it may, may the Lord give us ears to hear as we look to scripture for guidance in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful. We take a moment just to give you the exaltation that's due, Lord. You're so good to us. You've saved us. So many of us in this room, Lord, we can, we can tell stories of the storms that we've been through in this life and how we have, by your grace, lived to tell the tale. Lord, you've, you've brought us through so many things. Lord, forgive us for forgetting uh, all the glorious things you've done. And I pray that you'd cause us to be more and more mindful of the glorious things you've done for us. Make us a thankful bunch, Lord. Help us to keep our eyes on your son, Jesus. Help us to not uh, become fearful. But Lord, in these days of dark days here in this country where we're living, I pray that the darker it gets, the more courage that we'd find in your church, Lord people bravely serving you, walking with you, keeping their eyes on you. Lord, may we step out of our boat uh, and, and, and do those ventures of faith that you've called us to do. Lord, the, the commands that you've given for us to do, the mission that you've called us to be. Lord, I pray that we do those well. So find, Lord, a church that's faithful, serving you, walking with you, trusting you through the storm. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.